Good afternoon. It's Friday the 14th of August 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Right, so we'll get straight on. We've got lots to get through today. And, uh, well, we're glad to know, Patrick, that uh, Test and Trace... 250,000 people reached, allegedly. Well, we'll come on to that in a second. I thought it was track and trace. Uh, no, no, it's test and trace because we, we track, that's a bit of motive, people being tracked around the place, but also we've got to emphasize the test, ah, they the testing changed aspect. It. They've changed it. They're very fluid like that. Um, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, so what are they announcing? Uh, a rise of 12% more people being tested compared to the, uh, the week to last week. Uh, and it shows that the public health campaign run by the NHS Test and Trace uh, to encourage greater uptake of testing is working. So that's brilliant news. Um, and, uh, well, this means that, you know, when you go to the restaurant or the pub or something like that, you're going to see a QR code just like, just like this. You get to scan that uh, and you get to let the government know where you were at any particular moment in time. So you, you have the privilege of eating out as long as you scan the QR code, right? Absolutely. That's the first thing that they ask you to do is to scan the QR code, and that information goes off, and away you go. Uh, so this is brilliant stuff. Now, the question is, have 250,000 people been reached? Now, I have to say that over the last uh, number of weeks, there have been some questions about this in, uh, in the mainstream press as well, and they've been asking government ministers uh, questions about this, and Matt Hancock in particular has been pretty rubbish at answering these questions but I just wanted to show uh, an email that we received in yesterday uh, on this hi guys uh, I work from home for the government's pathetic track and trace campaign so uh, he uh, obviously knew or she obviously knew that uh, it was track and trace at one point I'm doing it for in income and nothing else it's a farce I've done this since May had a handful of calls and never spoken to a single person so is the government being accurate when they say 250,000 people? Possibly not. Uh, but he goes on to say, my reason for contacting you is that I watch every broadcast you make and you often mention the Behavioural Insights team. Well, the Track and Trace had an operational update today which included a speaker from the Behavioural Insights team. Uh, so who would this have been? Uh, well, it was none other than this lady, Cathy Coleman. Uh, now, Cathy is the uh, head of what is described at the Behavioural Insights team as external training and capability building programs at the Behavioural Insights team. Uh, in this role, she is responsible for designing learning programs to build organisations' understanding of and capability for applying behavioural insights. As an organisational psychologist, she designs training programs that are behaviourally informed and apply principles of durable learning and adult instructional design. I'm sure you're understanding everything that's being said here. Uh, Cathy has designed behavioural insights training programs for the UK Civil Service, the United Nations Development Programme, Harvard Kennedy School, Cambridge Judge Business School and Warwick Business School. And prior to joining BIT, uh, Cathy worked as a management consultant designing brain-friendly learning solutions across multiple channels organizational levels, cultures, and geographies. Uh, so she is a registered organizational psychologist uh, and uh, a project manager and has an MSc in occupational psychology from Goldsmiths College uh, at the University of London. Brain-friendly training exercises as, as opposed to non-brain-friendly. What would that be? Torture? I don't know. Who knows? Interesting. But anyway, that, well, so why is she involved in, in uh, track and trace, uh, test and trace, whatever you want to call it today? Uh, well, of course, uh, it's all about using behavioral analytics and behavioral psychology uh, in order to drive engagement within the public uh, for test and trace. But Patrick, this is the biggest surveillance operation that we have ever seen. So if we were concerned about, uh, uh, you know, Surveil you know, CCTV cameras uh, watching us in the streets. Well, okay, that's assuming that the CCTV that you could be actually identified as a result of being seen on a CCTV camera. Now you're actually most people that are taking part in this are volunteering to hand this data over to government. Uh, this is it's, it's utopian or it's it's uh, you know dystopian is the right word I'm thinking of, uh, type of uh, type of thing. We've seen this in Hollywood movies over the years, this level of surveillance in, in, in future 
uh, you know, imagine futures. It's here now, and sure. we're, uh, most of us are volunteering to take part in it. This, this is a power that, that government has never had before, not, not in the, quote, free Western countries. Certainly this is par for the course in a country like China or in an authoritarian uh, setup. I noticed Kathy Coleman, you know, the end of her title is capability building. What sort of capabilities uh, are we talking about? Are we talking about nudging? Are we talking about uh, behavioral modification? Is that, are those the capabilities that she and her behavioral insights team are building? That's, you know, a little bit worrying to have that as a sort of an official title within a government mm -hmm. department. Um, I don't know if I'm the only one who would be worried seeing this sort of thing, but uh, it seems to be very common now. Uh, but don't worry, uh, don't worry. The government is, is on our cases, no problems. We've got tougher fines coming for serious breaches of coronavirus restrictions. And of course, this is all about masks. Uh, and so what are they actually saying here? Because in the mainstream press, the headlines have all, all been about the £3,200 fine. Uh, so what is actually being said? Well, at present, anybody that doesn't cover their faces in shops or in public transport can be ordered to pay £100. Uh, but if you pay it within a, a limited time, fortnight or so, uh, that will go down to £50. Uh, but Boris Johnson is now saying that uh, if you're caught without a mask for a second time, it'll be a £200 fine, uh, and that amount will double for every repeat offence, up to a maximum of £3,200. And now, if you're uh, an organiser of an, what they're describing as an illegal rave, uh, you may uh, face a fine of £10,000. Uh, so that's good stuff. Uh, and uh, that will apply to anybody that's organizing what are described as unlawful, unlawful gatherings of more than 30 people. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in the meantime, then, of course, uh, the big rush back from France is on. Uh, and Eurotunnel or this, today, Eurostar saying, don't even try. It's booked up. Uh, there are no places for anybody. Don't even try. Um, so from 4 a.m. on Saturday, France and the Netherlands, Malta, Turks and Kakos, uh, Aruba and Monaco all go on the uh, quarantine list. So you have to uh, self-isolate for 14 days when you come back from those places as from tomorrow. It's still more incredible power by government, Mike, here. They make one change, they make one policy tweak or announcement, and then all of a sudden the masses have to move, basically, with whatever the policy du jour is. This incredible amount of unprecedented power by governments. Uh, absolutely, but so that, that was the stick. Now for the carrot, you're allowed to go bowling again. You're allowed to go to a wedding reception for up to 30 people. Enjoy. Uh, and you might be allowed to go to a sporting event uh, in beginning from the 15th of August. Uh, so uh, if maybe, you're wearing a mask, probably. Probably, yeah. and un undoubtedly there'll be social distancing there as well. Um, but uh, so maybe some people will be able to go to a football match and they will not have to broadcast football matches on television with fake crowd noises in the background. Yeah, I'm sure they'll be able to police that in the terraces uh, if they don't have their masks on properly. Good luck with that. Yeah. That should be fun with the stewards yes. trying to direct traffic there. So it, it's th this is what's happening in Europe. This is what's happening in the UK. Let's take a look at what's happening in the United States right now, Mike. So these are uh, from the Washington Post. Uh, what I'm going to show you is a series of stories here. Now, this is the headline uh, that was basically blazoned across the Post recently. 1,500 U.S. coronavirus deaths marks the deadliest day of the summer. Look at that headline. Now, that would shock you, right? But, you know, really spread across the 50 states and a country of 330 million uh, in the fact, looking at this in terms of excess deaths, it's really not that shocking. But upon closer examination, the devil's in the detail. Whenever you see this, look at this article. How many authors do we have on this article? That's, well, that looks like six or seven there. It's, it's not much over 500 words, Mike. So, yeah. you know, how, that's about 100 words per person there. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six authors. Little pro tip for our viewers and readers. Whenever you see six, five or six authors on a New York Times or Washington Post article, you know it's propaganda or it's fake news. And the reason they do that is because they want to sort of water it down so nobody can really take ownership of it. Mm -hmm. So you can never really get to the bottom of you know who put out this piece of propaganda. So that's just a little pro tip for our, our readers there. Look out for that. Now here's, here's the devil in the detail. The United States logged nearly 1,500 coronavirus-related Ah. fatalities. And so if you click through and you actually try to find the provenance of this claim 
of 1,500 coronavirus deaths, it gets more murky and, and watered down the further you dig. So this is on Wednesday, marking the deadliest day of the summer so far. So the idea here is that uh, there's a crisis going on in the United States. They want you to see this. They want politicians to react. And they're saying here the, the grim tally is the highest since mid-May, signaling that America does not have the pandemic under control despite stabilizing case numbers. So they're really bringing back, trying to bring the deaths back in uh, in order to compensate for this uh, bubble of cases. And that's the only way we can describe it is, is a bubble mm -hmm. of cases and spikes and outbreaks that are relatively meaningless uh, compared to hospitalizations and deaths. And they can't even produce definitive deaths anymore. Now it's coronavirus-related deaths. Mm -hmm. So who knows how many of those are in care homes? And is that because uh, the, the death statistics have been challenged so much? There's so much skepticism about whether somebody actually died as a result of COVID or, or died of some, some underlying cause with yeah. a positive test? And when you look at these numbers, the majority of the cases they're citing are from where? Take a wild guess. Elderly in care homes with multiple long-term chronic comorbidities. And once again, it's the same story all over again. So this isn't a threat to the general public at large, but it's being made out that way in the media. And we'll get into the argument over school opening. So moving on, uh, when we dig a little further here, they're saying that uh, U.S. reports the highest number of deaths since May. Now, why is this important? Look at the image and the headliner of this article. These are kids in, crowded in the hallway going back to school. And this is where the big discussion is right now, should schools be open? And of course, the president, Donald Trump, is advocating that they do open schools, get the kids back to school. And this has now become a partisan issue. Democrats want schools closed. They want people on Zoom or Skype and distance learning, maybe going in one or two days a week. I don't see what the point of that is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's no different than going in five days a week, really. But well, the only reason they argue for that is because the class sizes can be smaller. Right. So, that, so they're, they're rotating, a, you know, you're on a rotation. So we'll get into the, the, the real risk with regards to kids and students. But let's look at what the president uh, is saying here. Here's Donald Trump uh, basically saying, interestingly here, this is from the Washington Post. As the U.S. reported its highest deaths from the novel coronavirus, they're still calling it novel mm -hmm. notice, in a single day since mid-May, Trump continues to press for the nation's schools to bring the children back into classrooms and for businesses to open and for athletes to fill stadiums. Funny, funny how the Washington Post said the athletes to fill stadiums. I think fans fill stadiums. Yes. Athletes play on the pitch, but we'll give them a little leeway because they have a green shield on NewsGuard, so we'll let them go. But, but you can see how they're politicizing this, Mike. Schools, businesses, sports need to stay closed uh, if you're a Democrat mm. or if you are pro-pandemic uh, or you're pro-Fauci or you're pro-Gates. And so do everything Donald Trump is advocating for is apparently bad, according to the U.S. media, in an election year. So this is shaping up as an election issue. So Project Fear, we're really on it right now. So he goes on here, and this is interesting. This is Trump saying, we've got to open our schools and open up our businesses. Let them play. He's talking about the mm -hmm. kids and the sports teams and so forth. And uh, he goes on to say here, uh, when you sit at home in a basement looking at a computer and your brain starts to wither away, uh, all schools should be making plans to resume in-person classes as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. This is what the president is saying. Now, most recently, people are going to look at this and think, that sounds pretty reasonable. Uh, but he goes on here, 99.9% .9 of the deaths from coronavirus pandemic involve adults. This is a fact. Uh, he says uh, he, he threatened, this is what the Post said, he threatened to divert federal money away from schools that don't open and warned of the intellectual damage that could result if children remain uh, at home indefinitely. So, I mean, that's not really out of the realms of, of, of having a, a civil discourse on this issue. But he is being attacked vehemently for saying that children should go back to school because the risks are low. And in response, the media are pumping uh, the mainstream media headlines with stories of, you know, anecdotal stories of some child who supposedly was sick from COVID or the fact that in the whole country of France there were 75 cases 
cases or people yeah. testing positive in schools in, in the whole of France, 65 million people. Mm -hmm. And so that's meant to be proof that schools can't be safe, need to keep them closed. The effect this is going to have on children, Mike. It's, yes. It's, it's devastating. They will ne some, some experts, Mike, I don't know what you're hearing, they're saying they will never catch up. This generation are permanently stunted uh, academically, intellectually. They will not be able to compete on a global stage or even within their peer group with, you know, in their careers uh, moving in through the university system right now and into the world, of, the world of work, as they call it. Yeah, but uh, this isn't a problem, Patrick, because as we said on the program before, there are no jobs. The jobs are all gone, so they don't need an education. Yeah, they don't need... This seems to, you know, I can't see any other... I can't see any other explanation for why governments are behaving this way. They they aren't stupid, these people. They know exactly what the implications are for children for, for dealing with their education and the way that they've dealt with it. They understand what the implications are. If I, There is no justification for doing this unless there's some understanding that in the, in the near future, whether you want to call it fourth industrial revolution or sustainability or whatever the, the, the acronym you want to use is, uh, the, the jobs that we've seen in the past aren't coming back. And so whether that means we're heading towards some kind of universal basic income or whatever, I don't know. But there's a, clearly no desire within governments at the moment to require children to have a proper education for the next 50 years. But this is going to adversely affect those who are in lower income brackets and disadvantage. Absolutely. If you can afford to send your children to elite private schools, there's not going to be much difference uh, in terms of interruption yeah. from this so-called pandemic. So that just accentuates the gulf that was already there within society and expands the sort of the gap between elites and the lower classes. And of course, that's what we were seeing in the exam results uh, debacle over the last couple of days. Exactly what we've seen. Yes. Yeah, a, a two-tiered social system, yes. basically. So the whole this is all predicated on the argument that it's not safe to send children back to school, and that's an interesting claim. It's an interesting claim. I haven't seen any evidence that backs that up. But what we did find, if we take a look at this, here's a peer-reviewed paper. Uh, this is in the uh, Journal of Medical Virology. Let's take a look at this. This is interesting. Peer-reviewed, August 7th, transmission dynamics of SARS-CoV-2 within families uh, with children in Greece, a study of 23 clusters. This has been peer-reviewed and published. Still has to go through some uh, proofreading stages, but let's look at what the main claim here is. And this is uh, something you should pay attention to, especially if you have children in school or you know anybody who's in the teachers' union. While children become infected with SARS-CoV-2, they do not appear to transmit the infection to others. Furthermore, children more frequently have an asymptomatic or mild course compared to adults. Uh, there's not much more to say there, Mike, and uh, that's not the only piece of literature I've seen mm -hmm. making similar claims. So this idea that schools can't be safe for children or that somehow children pose a risk to each other or to society or to, they're going to infect teachers, this is a, a groundless claim, basically. Absolutely. So let's, uh, let's move on. Now, this is where it gets interesting. On the university level in the United States, this is the SEC, Southeastern Conference uh, Commissioner. Uh, they're saying he's on the side of college football's desired divide on one side, and he uh, he's not burning bridges. So this is uh, the uh, Greg uh, Sankey. He is the commissioner of the SEC. This is a major college football and basketball baseball conference. So the college football season is coming up. Now, if people who aren't in America aren't aware of this, but the uh, the college football, college sports provides a lot of funding for universities. Mm -hmm. If you look at the research and development departments, the labs, a lot of the income that's built up these academic institutions comes from revenue generated from college sports. And because of the, quote, pandemic, they're basically shutting down. And you're talking about 100,000 capacity stadiums. Mm -hmm. College football in the United States is the same level as Premier League. It's bigger, in fact, on average, the, the crowds than Premier League football in Europe. So just to give you an idea okay. of the proportion. So they're wanting to shut down all the leagues. But what's interesting, some of the leagues want to play, Mike, within their own conferences. So, But what we're seeing is interesting, this divide is really mirroring what we saw. This is the 2016 partisan election map. Blue states being Democrat states. This is how they voted in 2016. Red states being Republican states. 
And so if you think about the economic ramifications of this, the college conferences on the coasts, the West Coast and the East Coast, mm -hmm. their policies on sports very much reflects uh, the same sort of policies that the governors and the city mayors are in the Democratic Party. So this is going to mean uh, an economic depression uh, for some of those educational institutions on the coasts. And then in the middle, where the SEC, the Sun Belt, uh, the Rust Belt, the Midwest, these are conservative strongholds, you're going to see a, a potentially a bump uh, in economic gains uh, because they're getting back to normal. So isn't this interesting how the United States, the, the economic map and the political map because of COVID are kind of uh, in sync right now? And this is going to create, again, a, a, a more polarity going into this election season. So everything is political. COVID has politicized absolutely everything about society. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on to this then. Uh, here's David Curtin, who is uh, UKIP, I believe, uh, and he was tweeting this out yesterday. And New Zealand becomes a police state nightmare, quarantine camps for anyone who has a cold and their families. Um, so uh, before we talk about, discuss what he's talking about, uh, that garnered quite a response. So here's one example uh, from News Hub in New Zealand. Coronavirus British politician sparks police state fears with false claims about New Zealand quarantine. Um, and uh, they go on, well, they f first of all, they begin the article with a personal attack. Uh, and then they say that on Thursday night, he retweeted a video of Director General, General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield, talking about the government's new plan to put people with confirmed infections of SARS-CoV-2 virus into managed quarantine facilities. Uh, so let's just have a look at, uh, or listen to what uh, uh, Director General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield said. As part of our overall national response to this new outbreak, I am now directing medical officers of health that all cases, confirmed cases, are to be managed in a quarantine facility. Now, this is different to how positive cases were managed when we were last at levels four and indeed three, and shows how serious we are about limiting any risk of ongoing transmission, even in self-isolation and including to others in the household. This will apply to any cases and also close family members who might be at risk as appropriate. A reminder, these facilities has been, have been set up specifically and have excellent processes and resources in place to look after people with COVID-19, including health staff on site at all times, and it will help us avoid any further inadvertent spread into the community as part of our overall response. So, you know, that's pretty clear, Patrick. If you are test positive, you and your family taken away, put in a some kind of facility. Now, in the UK, there has been some speculation about whether this is going to happen, particularly in recent days, uh, over the possibility that the government is going to claim the right to remove children from schools uh, without explicit parental consent. Uh, and that's certainly what the guidelines seem to imply. Uh, and perhaps in, the, in those cases, the government is looking for something to use the, uh, the Nightingale hospitals for, for example. Um, but that seems to be clear. Now, the only criticism that you can make uh, of the, of the uh, so-called British politician here is to say, well, he, he was a bit dis, uh, dismissive by calling it a cold. Uh, but I think we can probably agree with that to a certain degree. It is a coronavirus, like a common cold. It doesn't seem to do much more damage than a common cold in terms of hospitalizations and deaths uh, at the end of the day. So it, it was probably a f fair enough statement, but the, the newspaper wasn't very happy about this and, uh, and they're calling it a fake news statement. So, but the question is, of course, this is all on the basis of tests, Patrick. Yeah. And, this and, and David Curtin said cold. He was kind of, he might've been alluding to something there, Mike, the common cold with regards to testing. And uh, I don't know. Well, well, ab absolutely. But, but even setting aside the possibility of a false positive on the basis of some other coronavirus, if we just look at some of the headlines of the last few months, uh, coronavirus are false positive COVID-19 tests skewing infection rate figures. Yes. Uh, the, but the week's asking that. Here's the Metro saying uh, Big Brother's Josh Martin has boost, boot, uh, booted off all stars due to false positive coronavirus test. I'm not sick, he says. 
then we've got BBC Sport, Motherwell, first uh, team player to self-isolate despite false positive COVID-19 test. Uh, here's the Herald, six of St Mirren's coronavirus tests were false positives, re-examination finds. Um, and this is the Telegraph from today, the statistical quirk that means the coronavirus pandemic may have never officially end. Uh, and uh, we have uh, the Spectator saying or asking how many COVID diagnoses are false positives. And the point of the Spectator, I want to focus on what they're saying in particular here because they're giving a, an example, a scenario. They're saying, imagine 10,000 random people go for a COVID-19 test uh, with the infection level at 0.1%. Uh, so they're really talking about the situation where there are fewer and fewer, fewer genu genuine cases in the in the population. Uh, and what does that mean for the results of the tests? And so they're saying, let's say there's an infection level of 0.1%. Uh, so in other words, out of 10,000 people, that would mean that 10 people have SARS-CoV-2. 9,900 people will not have it. So of the, of the 10 people who turn up with an infection, 80% because of the, the way that the test works, 80% will test positive. That means that eight people will be correctly identified as having it. Two people will walk away with a false negative. But they go on. Of the 9,990 not infected, all but 10 will be correctly diagnosed as negative. And that's because of what's described as specificity with respect to the tests. And the specificity for the current uh, PCR tests that are being used is 99.9%. But if the specificity is 99.9%, that means that 10 will be told that they have COVID-19 when in fact they don't. So that means that as a result, you end up with 18, out of the 10,000 tests that you run, you end up with 18 positive tests, but only eight of, the, of those people are genuinely positive, which means you only get 50% uh, uh, correct uh, test result. So... I think we're seeing that at the moment. We're absolutely seeing that at the moment. There's evidence to suggest that. More and more questions being asked in the mainstream press even because it's it's not something that can be ignored anymore. So so they have to ask these questions. I, well, I said this on the program last week. The problem with the PCR test and some of these rapid express tests for, for coronavirus is they cannot determine. None of these tests can tell you what the actual viral load is. They can't tell you if you actually have a, quote, infection. Infection means you have an active virus and it's replicating and the viral load is a certain amount, something that would sort of cause an immune reaction, hence would make mm -hmm. you sick and you'd end up in the hospital. None of these tests are, can do that. They are not diagnostic tests. None of these tests are diagnostic tests. Nobody can say they are, no medical professional, none, no one from any of these companies. The companies that tell you how to read the tests, by the way, yeah. they're the arbiters and the World Health Organization of how to interpret these tests. These are not foolproof tests. They're not diagnostics. They're hugely prone to false positives. And yet, and yet we are building all of our policy, all of our government-issued uh, regulations, our travel regulations, our schools, the education, the future of our, our children, the next generation are all... The, the level of surveillance. Level of surveillance, all dependent on this, this hugely flawed and unreliable and completely inaccurate, in many cases, testing system. And so that everything's built on top of that. Nobody is, very few people are questioning it other than a few conscientious people in the mainstream media. When are the politicians going to pull their finger out and take a hard look at this issue? Uh, they're not, is my prediction. But, uh, which brings us on to this, because of course the situation in hospitals is perhaps a more accurate uh, identifier for what's actually going on in the country. Now this is from RTE in the Republic of Ireland and they're saying that there are 13 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in hospitals in the Republic of Ireland, uh, according to government figures, and that six of those patients are in intensive care units, four on ventilators, uh, that there are also 138 suspected cases in hospitals, six of whom are in intensive care and two on ventilators. Suspected cases. Right? But this is in the Republic of Ireland. In the UK, I'm not seeing any mainstream press articles on the situation in the hospitals. What I am hearing from people that I know that are working in various hospitals is that the COVID wards are empty. There's nobody in the COVID wards. And yet in Plymouth here in the uh, in Derriford Hospital, 
they uh, published a press release that was uh, picked up by local media a couple of days ago begging people not to go to, a to accident and emergency departments because the numbers of people going back to accident and emergency uh, departments are starting to get back to pre-COVID levels and they don't want to see this. So they're actively discouraging people from going to hospital for emergency treatment at the moment. From using the NHS. From using the NHS. Yeah. And yet the COVID wards are empty. Mm. So, you know, this uh, at, at every stage of this, Patrick, from the beginning in March, we have been making the point that the story that's being told in the mainstream press is not reality. Mm. And, and the just, uh, you know, as you've made this point a second ago, the justification for all this stuff that's going on at the moment is not based in reality. Instead, we had an inversion of reality in the form of the government public relations campaign, save the NHS, stay at home. The, 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 the NHS doesn't need saving. The COVID wards are empty. The NHS is supposed to save us. Yes. It's supposed to save the people. That's what it's there for. It's not being used. It was transformed into a COVID-only health service in March, and it's still a, effectively a COVID-only health service. This makes absolutely no sense from a utilitarian point of view. What is the foundational decision-making uh, philosophy of this government in 2020? This is a fair question. A, quote, conservative government. It's supposed to be uh, dealing on best principles. What's happening? It's unbelievable. Good question, but uh, let's move on. What's Bill Gates up to? Well, where, where's our government getting their marching orders? This is the big question. Well, here's a little clue right here. Now, Bill Gates uh, is gone on a little PR defensive, Mike. He's, uh, he was on the offense before. Now, Bloomberg and some of these publications are running cover for Bill Gates. Now, this is Bill Gates in another interview, uh, and he's talking here about his vaccines. He's talking about hydroxychloroquine and the dreaded 5G conspiracy theory. This is supposedly something to worry about, according to the mainstream press. Gates is claiming here he's been vilified by, quote, anti-vaxxers and other conspiracy theorists who claim he seeded the virus for his own nefarious purposes. I have never, ever seen a claim that Bill Gates seeded the virus. I have not either. I don't know where he's getting this. They might have plucked this off of a, uh, some obscure QAnon uh, Twitter feed or something like this, and then this is uh, good enough for Bloomberg to run with. But let's look at what the man himself is saying. Here he is. Uh, note the title at the bottom. Uh, we're calling him HRH Bill Gates because he is, in fact, the unofficial king of the world right now. Now, this is what Bloomberg is saying that Gates has been vilified by anti vaxxers who claim he's been, you know, he's seeded the virus and so forth. So they go on here, and this is Gates himself. He says, It's strange. They take the fact that I'm involved with vaccines, involved with vaccines. Yeah. You have to be kidding me. He's driving the whole global vaccine production. Uh, capability. He's, so they take the fact that I'm involved with vaccines and they just reverse it. So instead of giving money to save lives, I'm making money to get rid of lives, says Bill Gates. <laughs> he said it himself. So and I don't know if, if he's being facetious there. I really, it's, it's difficult to tell sometimes. It really is. But that's what he said here. And he goes on saying, making something mandatory, vaccines, can often backfire, says Bill Gates, but you might say that if you're going to work in an old folks home or having any exposure to elderly people, it would be required. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's, he is advocating, he, being the billionaire philanthropist, he's advocating at every step of the way public health policy, even he's saying, I'm not, I'm not a, a for mandatory vaccines, and then in the same sentence he's saying, Yes, they're going to have to be mandatory for this. As we know, it's a slippery slope. Once you start making it mandatory in one area, it's very, very quickly and very easily it's going to be mandatory in other areas. And he goes on here to add, say, he's saying here, we'll get out of this by the end of 2021. We're lucky this, this one wasn't a more fatal disease. So he's already backtracking here. Uh, before, a couple of months ago, all the interviews, he said, this is the pandemic, we need to shut down the economy, we need to lock down until the vaccine is ready. And then he's now a bit rattled by the amount of criticism. He's not having sort of crowds of fawning people, you know, throwing flowers to him when he appears. Or, I don't know, he doesn't really appear in public anymore, he just appears on screens. He's a, not, not in the West, he's happy to appear in public in Africa or 
uh, India or places like this. Or, or in Britain, you know, when he's doing visits to world leaders to give them instructions on, on health policy. Who, who appointed this man, the global expert on pharmaceuticals, on public health policy? Where, where did he, he get this uh, title? You know, who, who, who uh, conveyed this, you know? Well, I admit, who might be the right word? Uh, because of course he's he's putting a lot of money into it. So, into the World uh, Health Organization, yes, yes. yeah, so four hundred million a year, yeah, to be, to be exact. Yes. So, so well, look, stick, sticking with vaccines for a second, then. Uh, of course, the big question that we've been asking for a few weeks is about AstraZeneca and their and the Oxford vaccine uh, approval. Who needs approval now? Of course, this resulted in a freedom of information uh, request. Uh, which asked about the statement from Matt Hancock saying that AstraZeneca had been awarded a contract to produce the vaccine prior to the approval process being complete so that there was a stockpile of the vaccine available should that approval process uh, uh, go through. And the question in this, uh, in this Freedom of Information request is, uh, were they getting paid no matter what the results of the approval process or had they been uh, you know, basically given approval to go ahead with the manufacturing, no matter what the outcome of the clinical trials. Um, and uh, so there was some information requested on that uh, to the Department of Health and Social Care. And of course, the, the, the request went into them uh, because uh, it was Man ha Matt Hancock who had made the statement. He is the health secretary. Uh, well, the response has come back from the Department for Health and Social Care, who says that they do not hold the information that's been requested. They say that uh, we may wish to contact the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy as they are the key holders of this policy area and were the organizers of the meetings and therefore may hold the information that has been requested. So this deal with AstraZeneca was not uh, done through the Department of Health at all. It was done through the Department of uh, Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Um, and well, there may be some questions people may want to ask over that. Uh, but uh, over the last couple of days, uh, we've been uh, highlighting the work of Professor Carl Hennigan and the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University. Uh, I think we covered this on Wednesday. Uh, and of course, uh, we, one of the things that he was really highlighting was the, the fact that, the, um, that there is no rise in, in deaths and there's, therefore there's no justification for the lockdowns and local lockdowns and so on. Uh, but and even case numbers uh, it's all based on the increased testing and so on. Now, of course, uh, we highlighted on Wednesday that as a result of his criticism on the death statistics and, the, and therefore the government have to, having to backtrack on the death statistics, that the government had removed the daily death statistics from the uh, uh, coronavirus uh, dashboard that they publish. So at the bottom there, it says there on the 17th of July, the Secretary of State uh, asked Public Health England to urgently review the way daily death statistics are currently recorded. Uh, we are pausing the publication of the daily figures while this review takes place. Now, uh, Wednesday, I think, was the uh, 12th of uh, August, so that was nearly a month uh, since those uh, statistics were paused uh, and there was still nothing. But within two hours of, uh, of the lunchtime broadcast on Wednesday, uh, Matt Hancock announced the, the reinstatement of the death statistics. So here is the, uh, the dashboard from this morning, and we can see in the bottom right-hand side there the number of deaths. Uh, and Patrick, I don't know if you can see, how many deaths have there been in the last few days? Well, and that line looks really flat. Uh, around the zero mark. Yeah, it's really flat, yes. that line. Yes, and you'll notice that the, the total number of deaths has reduced from 46,000 or so to 41,000 or so. So what they've done is, as a result of the review, they have removed 5,000 people from the from the coronavirus statistics. Did they rise up from the dead? Was was it? Is this the Lazarus effect? No. Or was this a statistical error on the government's part? Well, I think I think they have absolutely underestimated the statistical error, uh, and uh, so the removal of 5,000 people from being categorised as COVID deaths doesn't go anywhere near far enough. They're still trying to claim 41,000. Uh, I would be uh, very interested to see what, uh, I will be very interested to see what Professor Hennigan 
uh, does with this because I'm quite sure he isn't going to let this go. So do you think he's speaking from the point of view that uh, Brian Garish made yesterday, which is that there's a big difference between uh, the Office for National Statistics as an institution and Public Health England, which is prone to be politicized. That, that was exactly the point that Professor Hennigan was making, yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. And the Public Health England figures have undoubtedly been politicized, so absolutely. You, so you should bear that in mind when you're looking at the numbers yes. coming from these different institutions. Yes. yes. Uh, now, if you like what the column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And just a final reminder that uh, today is the last UK column news for two weeks. Uh, so the office will be closed from the seventh, from Monday until the 28th and we will return, therefore, on the uh, 31st of August. Uh, and again, we would like to say a massive thank you to everybody that has uh, supported us this year. It has been spectacular. And a lovely picture of Blackpool in the background there, Mike. Absolutely. With the, with the palm trees and the sun. So get out to... Get out to Weston Supermare in Blackpool this weekend. Uh, well, I couldn't possibly... Might be a bit cloudy, though. Couldn't possibly give that advice. Uh, now, let's just quickly move on, because we're running out of time. Uh, glad to know, Patrick, that uh, there's new legislation in place from, uh, from yesterday. Uh, new powers, which allow the police to stop and search uh, people at the borders. Uh, so let's have a look at what it says. Powers coming into effect... Uh, yesterday will allow specially trained police officers to stop, question and when necessary detain and search individuals travelling through UK ports to determine whether they're involved in hostile state activity. So Russians and Chinese basically. Yeah? Uh, that may well be uh, the, the main focus of this. Uh, so this was a statutory instrument. It, they said that it, it uh, obtained parliamentary approval. I don't believe that anybody in Parliament even looked at it. Uh, but anyway, it is now uh, the, well, it's now the rules not the law, but the rules. So let's see, only accredited officers that have completed the training can exercise these powers and they must do so in accordance with the relevant code of practice. That's good. Uh, the powers will also be subject to independent oversight through the role of the independent reviewer on terrorism legislation and a similar role being fulfilled by the investigatory powers commissioner. And the investigatory powers commissioner has done a spectacular job, as we know, Patrick, with dealing with the, the surveillance state, haven't they? You're being facetious, Absolutely, aren't you? yes. So, and no doubt these agents are steeped in the post-truth world um, uh, ethics of Bellingcat, right? And if they've read up uh, about the evil Dr. Mishkin and uh, Sergeant Chapika. Absolutely, but, but you don't need to worry, Patrick. You don't need to worry because every individual subject to an examination will be provided with information about their rights and duties under the legislation and how to make a complaint if they're unhappy with their treatment. And this is good news for Arabs. You're off the hook for the moment. It's really Russians and Chinese, I think, that they're after, at least for this year. It could change, though. It could. It, it could, could change. But look, look, and a serious point, this is a slippery slope, and uh, we should be asking questions about this. Uh, changes to the draft codes make it clear that all confidential material is to be handled with care to minimize the risk of it being seen by a frontline officer. So if you've got confidential information material on your laptop or on your phone, uh, that will be handled with care. And don't worry, a frontline officer won't see that. That will go to the security services and will be treated with utmost respect at that point. Because you can trust them, right? You can absolutely trust them. Uh, officers will be prohibited from reviewing conf confidential material in order to verify whether a person's claim is to be in possession of such material is true. In other words, if you say that uh, you have confidential material on your phone, a frontline officer would not be able to force you to um, give them the, the code or cut your thumb off to get the fingerprint or whatever in order to view that. That, again, will be left to the secret intelligence services, no doubt. Uh, protections for confidential material have been extended so that they also apply with respect to confidential journalistic sources, right? But who, at the end of the day, Patrick, who's going to make this decision? It's going to be... Uh, Secret Intelligence Services or MI5 or somebody along these lines, effectively, if you get stopped as a journalist under this legislation, your sources are blown. So, so they're, they're targeting journalists, basically. Why, they why, are including journalists, yes. Why absolutely. else would they have this clause in here? Uh, uh, so indeed. They're targeting journalists. Uh, right, okay. So, uh, so then it goes on to talk about uh, uh, f biometrics, fingerprints, and DNA profiles. So they're saying that uh, uh, there, there are provisions in place to allow... 
the fingerprints and DNA profiles of unconvicted individuals of national security interest to be retained after initial specified statutory periods have expired, if doing so is necessary and proportionate for the purpose of national security. Again, I ask who makes that decision? And it goes on to say that operational experience has shown that the previous uh, two-year length was not short, it was too short in many cases, uh, and that those involved in terrorism will often pose a more enduring threat than this. So they're increasing the maximum length that they can retain this personal information from two to five years. So you don't need to worry, Patrick. It's all the protections are in place, but uh, sources, well, if you're going to carry any equipment through a border coming into the UK, I would suggest you might need to think twice about that if you're coming from a country where the government may feel uh, that there are hostile state actors at work. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting development. So more uh, creeping uh, by the uh, security state, expanding the definition of, quote, national security yes. and what's in the interest of national security. Confidential materials. So basically anybody's private information, their private property. It's now called confidential material. It's not your private information anymore, at least if you're not, uh, you're, you're fine if you're not deemed to be a person of interest. This is a very slippery slope. But, the, but you know, the, the point is that persons of interest aren't defined as such. Mm -hmm. So they're talking it's about uh, hostile state actors. But does that mean somebody who's critical of, of domestically? A of, like a journalist. A journalist who's critical of, of this government? Clearly, that's what they're alluding to mm -hmm. uh, in, this, in this new uh, rules, guidelines. Uh, well, it's a statutory instrument, so, right. it's, so it's secondary legislation. Mm -hmm. Anyway, shall we move on back to, back across the Atlantic to the United States, Patrick? Yes, let's go look at what's happening in America. And uh, this has gotten interesting uh, just in the last couple of days. And there he is right now. That's Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee. And just a couple of days ago, it was Joe 2020, but uh, not anymore. We'll show you what that's all about uh, just in the last 48 hours. But there he is. And uh, he has been... Reports are he has been struggling uh, in a lot of his media engagements. He's not really public. Uh, he's been really a virtual candidate for the last six months, ever since Bernie Sanders bowed out of the primary race in March. But there he is looking a little bit uh, confused and a little bit vulnerable. We'll talk about that. And here's a story that, that we ran a couple of days ago. And this is, in all seriousness, Mike, this is no joke here. Why Democrats can't ignore Biden's mental decline any longer. Okay, and he's really uh, been put out by the party. And, and at 77 years old, you have to remember, the next youngest president in history of the United States is Donald J. Trump, who was inaugurated, I believe he was 70 years old, okay? Biden is the oldest by seven years. That's in the history of the United States. He'll be 78 if he wins, if he manages to win, and he's sworn in. Uh, he'll be 78 years old. That's eight years older than the previous uh, next oldest president. So, I mean, normally, you, you, for, for, for national security reasons, you would not be fielding a candidate of his age for obvious reasons because of health. And in Biden's uh, situation, it's, there's a visible cognitive uh, decline uh, that he is experiencing. And so... Here he is, and this is uh, in Biden's, what we call the COVID bunker. This is the studio set up, I believe, in the basement of his house. This is James Wood, the Hollywood actor, making the comment here, uh, basically saying, actually, uh, going to keep this guy in the basement until November 3rd. <laughs> It'll be the first time in American history that a presidential candidate has completely avoided the press at all costs because he literally can't stand 10 minutes of objective questioning, hashtag bunker boy, Biden, and it's not an exaggeration. I mean, what he's saying here is mostly true. Uh, so, and we'll look here at uh, the announcement of Kamala Harris as his VP just a couple of days ago. And why, the, why is this important? Why is this vice presidential announcement important? I'll tell you why. And CNN admitted it here if you read this tweet. But Joe Biden, at his age, under his current mental condition, Mike, um, it's very likely he's not going to last. I've been, we've been saying this for a long time, uh, and a lot of people in the media are, are saying this now as well. Uh, he, he might not last 12 months, 18 months max. So whoever he picks as vice president is, in effect, going to be the president of the United States, mm -hmm. uh, or at least they're going to hold the place for him unless 
they could come in in the convention, which is in a couple, the next week, I believe, uh, and the Democrats are having their virtual Zoom convention. Biden could step down. I mean, he could step down the convention. Hillary could move in. Kamala could be vice president, or Biden could go forward if he wins, then steps down within the first year because of health reasons mm -hmm. or some scandal. And then you have you know, this, this president that came in the back door, Kamala Harris. We'll look at her record uh, in a minute. Here's what CNN's saying, though. Take a look at this tweet. So notice the wording here. Uh, so selecting someone whose resume suggests being ready to step in if and when Biden decides to step aside. That is massive. That, that's, that's quite an acknowledgement from what's effectively the state broadcaster in the United States. Well, at least the, the Democratic Party's state broadcaster mm -hmm. in the United States. So, I mean, they're really admitting it right there, the mainstream media, that Biden is really a placeholder. We've been saying this for months, okay? Mm -hmm. There's no way he's a viable candidate. He certainly can't govern uh, in his current mental state. So let's look at uh, this headline here. You probably have seen this. They didn't waste any time, did they, Mike? Here they are both like a couple of bandits adorning their black masks. Biden and Harris call for, get this, a nationwide face mask mandate. Although they didn't explain the specifics on exactly how that would work, they've still called for it nonetheless. I think we have a, a brief video clip here. This is Joe Biden explaining his mask mandate. This is not about Democrat, Republican, or Independent. It's about saving Americans' lives. So let's institute a mask mandate nationwide, starting immediately, and we will save lives. The estimates are we'll save over 40,000 lives in the next three months if that is done. Now let me turn it over to my colleague and running mate. She has a few comments to make. Love how we fit that on at the end. It's great. It just kind of shows you the farce uh, that we're experiencing right now. But let's take a look at this vice presidential pick here. And, you know, we asked the question, who is Kamala Harris? This is the big question. Uh, a lot of people don't know the specifics of her background. She's meant to be a Democrat, meant to be a, a guess, a liberal, a guess, maybe a progressive, although the progressives will say she's not very progressive. Let's take a look at some of her political exploits, though, here, Mike. Uh, no visible governing experience. She hasn't even completed one term as senator in California. This pretty much mirrors the ascendancy of Barack Obama, who didn't complete even one term as a U.S. senator from Illinois and, and got his seat under very precarious circumstances, by the way. So she's very much in the mold of Obama in that sense, although slightly older and being a female. And uh, as her state's attorney general in California, Harris locked up 1,500 marijuana smokers in California while herself joking about having smoked it, basically, in an interview. And so she pushed for the uh, execution of a death row inmate and blocked the admission of exculpatory DNA evidence uh, that would have exonerated him. It might have been uh, submitted later, but she had moved to block it, basically. So she's not your compassionate liberal by any stretch of the imagination. She is a hawk both domestically and internationally. We'll show you her foreign policy in a little bit. So she kept inmates beyond their sentences in order to use the prisoners as free labor for the state of California. So again, not very liberal. And uh, she fought to keep a skewed bail system in place, which disproportionately impacted poor, uh, the poor and African Americans. So not a lot of people in the, quote, black community, not big fans mm. of Kamala Harris. So it was an interesting choice by Biden. And this is interesting. We're getting to the foreign policy arena here. Close relationship with the far-right pro-war Israeli lobby organization known as the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, otherwise known as IPAC. Mm. She's very tight with IPAC. She's, in fact, married. Her husband is Jewish. So she's very much uh, into the um, relationship there with Israel, okay? So very, very loyal to Israel. She's an advocate of regime change in Syria. Sound familiar? She, a reluctance to co-sponsor key legislation to preventing war with Venezuela and North Korea, and a fervent promoter of the discredited Russiagate conspiracy theory, uh, which claims that Putin and Russia somehow intervened 
in the 26th U.S. presidential election. She's been front and center pushing the Russiagate conspiracy theory, saying Putin uh, is you know, in charge of the Trump administration and so forth. So, and again, this, this can only be described as a continuation of the uh, Clintonian foreign policy. This is Hillary Clinton 2.0, effectively. But this is where it gets interesting. You know, where does she stand on issues like climate change? Uh, what's a, a Kamala Harris presidency going to look like uh, with regards to the Green New Deal? Take a look at this. She, she's demanding the release of $10 trillion, $10 trillion to fund the Green New Deal and supposedly fight climate change, uh, man-made global warming or man-made CO2 that's supposedly heating up the earth, uh, which has yet to be proven uh, to be a fact, but she wants to basically rob the treasury or 10 trillion well she can't rob the treasury the treasury doesn't have 10 trillion dollars so she's going to print that money she's going to borrow it from the central banks yeah. so adding 10 trillion of debt onto the books and hey what's another 10 trillion uh, after this covid shopping spree right now so you can see this is a typical democrat borrow and spend and they're really up in the ante on this yeah. so that would bankrupt the united states and make the dollar uh, more or less worthless in terms of a currency so, and here she is on the Green New Deal. She, she wants to enforce this by changing the rules of the Senate. In other words, get rid of the Senate filibuster provision in order to pass the Green New Deal. So this is the democratic play. So it, it, forget about the fact that uh, green technology or sustainable technologies have been completely debunked, mm. especially in the last couple of years. There's a even a great environmental campaigner like Michael Moore, the filmmaker, released a film, Planet of Humans, uh, this past year that basically tears to pieces the whole idea of sustainable green energy and shows it's not green at all, it's not sustainable, it's completely unworkable. And that is the premise of the, quote, Green New Deal. Uh, and not only that, there's other top environmentalists have come out and said that this is just not workable basically um, so so uh, so basically it's beginning to look like she's going in as vice president uh, effectively the president elect uh, in the in the not too distant future somebody who otherwise could not even reasonably be expected to stand for the presidency if she was trying to run as a leading candidate and she did try to run as a leading candidate Mike she was months in single digits and met and bowed out of the primary race before the primaries began. Her presidential campaign was a complete shambles. And so she couldn't get elected on her own as a candidate. She couldn't even be in the top four Democratic runners on her own. So she's really sneaking in the party. This is a very cynical maneuver by the Democratic uh, Party here to, to plant her in behind a clearly a compromised, aging uh, candidate who's experiencing uh, pre-dementia symptoms right now in Joe Biden. And so in her cabinet is going to be basically a repeat of the Obama cabinet. She will have Susan Rice will be the Secretary of State or Samantha Power. So this is basically the whole Obama crew will come back in. This means responsibility to protect wars, humanitarian interventions, uh, proxy wars, probably backing jihadis again more fervently in Syria, something that Trump, uh, for all his faults, uh, has, has backed off. Uh, on supporting the uh, jihadi armies that Obama championed uh, in Libya and in Syria. So you could see a return to that. And of course, the full adoption of anything regarding new normal policies globally. Uh, very much uh, an advocate and will march to the orders of the World Economic Forum. Uh, any Democratic president, you probably bank on it. Trump is in trouble, Mike. Trump is in trouble here. The Democrats are playing to win by this pick. Uh, she does tick the boxes because, you know, who, this is a cynical ploy. Who is the most powerful demographic in the United States? Who decides who wins U.S. elections? Do you know what demographic that is? No. I'll tell you what demographic that is and talk to any of the leading pollsters. They will tell you it is white suburban women. Okay. Now, Trump will lose a substantial amount of white suburban women who will vote because she polls well with white suburban women. So that's, that is a major swing vote in the United States. And the Democrats have gone to seize this because they do like a black candidate. They do like a female black candidate as vice president. They don't buy the, the, uh, the, the story that Biden's going to back out. They just don't accept that yet. Although when he does, they'll all basically have no problem with 
her being shoehorned in. Oh, okay. Well, look, we're, we're right out of time, Patrick, but just before we go, you mentioned uh, par parallels with this and Obama, with her and Obama. Uh, there was, I did see somebody mention that Trump had said something about her eligibility the same way that Obama was uh, questioned with regard to eligibility? There, there is a potential birther controversy with Kamala Harris, which is no problem as vice president, but if she was being shoehorned into the presidency... It could be. It could be an issue because her father is from Jamaica and her mother is from India, and I haven't double-checked the facts on this, but it's possible that her both of her parents were not natural-born U.S. citizens, or it's possible that both of her parents weren't U.S. citizens at the time of her birth, in the United States. I don't know the ins and outs of that completely, but not natural born. Mm -hmm. So specifically to the U.S. constitutional requirements for President of the United States, her situation could fall foul or, or might be, you know, have to be interpreted legally to see if she is indeed eligible yeah. uh, to assume the presidency. You sh this should disqualify you uh, from being vice president, yeah, but, but, it, but it technically it doesn't. So what would happen if if she fell foul of the birther controversy, then the next in command uh, would be the Speaker of the House. Right. So President Pelosi. Oh, go all right. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. What a, there's what, a lot, there's some things to look at there. So. What I know to leave it on. That's look. something to chew on over yeah. your uh, uh, over the break. Over yes. your Christmas. Oh, sorry, Christmas. Summer. We're not there. They're selling crackers already in the shops. Yeah. Did you notice that? No. Christmas crackers I, are on sale. I haven't sale. been in any shops. Christmas crackers are on sale already. They're really getting ahead of the game. Yeah. Okay. Well, look. Uh, thank you, Patrick. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us today as well. Um, we will be back on the 31st of August, Monday, the 31st of August. Uh, have a great uh, couple of weeks, and we will see you then, we hope. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.